there's just so much emphasis on like the end result and career and things like that, but it's just so much more about the moment for me. It's about the creation itself. And if you have something that you feel like you need to get out, do it and fight for it. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Hey folks, exciting news. Sean Durkin is on the show. Sean wrote and directed the film The Nest, which Vanity Fair called one of the best films of 2020. The Nest follows Rory, played by Jude Law, a charming, charismatic, and handsome businessman who relocates his wife, Allison, played by the lovely Carrie Coon, and their children from suburban America to his native England with the hope of getting rich in the financial industry in 1980s London. As Rory's financial plans start to fall apart, so does his relationship with his wife, and Allison and the kids find themselves struggling to adapt while stuck living in the countryside in a rundown mansion they can't afford to furnish. Now, I know that movie description is a mouthful, but it really is a compelling family drama. I've seen The Nest, and I have to agree with Vanity Fair on this one. I love family dramas, especially dramas where the veneer on a person or a family starts to strip away, revealing flaws and vulnerabilities that ironically make the characters more human, relatable, and likable than the perfect versions of themselves presented at the beginning of the film. As you probably heard me talk a lot about in 2020, one of the highlights of my year was attending Sundance as a member of the press. So it was a true pleasure to extend the Sundance experience into the fall of this year and talk to such a talented yet humble screenwriter, director, and producer. Sean's first feature film was Martha Marcy May Marlene, which premiered at Sundance in 2011. I watched it on HBO Max before this interview, and it was fantastic. Film critics called it a cult detox drama or thriller. And I think that's a fair description, but I'm not sure you can even put this film into a category or genre. Whatever genre it's in, it's a stunning feature film for a first-time director, which adeptly builds tension in subtle and genius ways. It stars Elizabeth Olsen, Sarah Paulson, Hugh Dancy, Jonathan Hawks, Julia Garner, and Christopher Abbott. Now, Sean is also a producer. And the most recent film he produced is The Rental, written and directed by Dave Franco and starring Dan Stevens, Allison Brie, Sheila Vand, and Jeremy Allen White. I watched this film with my kids, and it's a lot of fun if you like thrillers. You may have gathered from the direction of this podcast almost two years ago that I love movies and I really like talking to filmmakers about their process. So this was a special one for me, and I want to thank Sean's publicist, Emma Myers, for making this happen. So without further ado, here's my chat with Sean Durkin. Sean Durkin, welcome to the podcast. I've been following your interview schedule since January uh, <laughs> in terms of on-camera interviews when that was still a thing back in January and February. And then all of the press leading up to the release of The Nest is keeping you quite busy. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely busy. Yeah. Well, thanks for making time for me, Sean. I know... Um, it's probably you're you're probably to wrap up the press on this aspect of the film since it's been no, dragging on this. I really, long. I really, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy you know connecting with an audience and and discussing it. So it's you know it's all all good stuff. I I watched the nest 
And what struck me about this film, and normally I don't use my own point of reference, my own life as kind of a, a portal into the film. But in this case, I was a child of, of the 80s and I made a move uh, from Washington State to Texas. Okay. At, and my uh, father had, you know, he moved us into this big house, bigger house, <laughs> biggest house we'd ever seen in Texas. And he was working for this company and we weren't really quite sure exactly what he was doing. And there were all these promises of, you know, we're, we're going to wow. you know, make it big this time. <laughs> and, and then it all sort of unraveled and there was a divorce and a financial disaster and we moved back to Washington State. So oh, this, <laughs> this film really hit me because I know that character. I know Jude Law's character of the, the charismatic person who can charm anybody in the room. And, yeah. and that was my dad. Uh, but, and, and a great guy, I'm not trying to disparage him, but just being factual here, um, extremely charismatic. And then you have this, this period of the mid eighties where I thought it was brilliant to choose that to just to dive right into the nest. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm doing this like a monologue, yeah, okay. here, but to dive right into the mid eighties where you don't have cell phones so you have this sense of isolation when Carrie Coon and her kids move to England. There's this real sense of isolation there in this giant mansion. And then also kind of culturally, I think it was pretty acceptable for men to keep their finances to themselves, to not really share you know, what's going on. And so I thought it was a great period piece from that standpoint where you shut out kind of the cultural differences financially with um, couples and, and uh, relationships. And also you have, you know, no cell phones or technology really struck me at how you were able to get to the essence of this story through, in part, through the period. So was that intentional on your part or did it sort of unfold outside of, of intention that way? Yeah, re really intentional. Um, you know, it started, I landed there because of personal experience. I um, I was back in England shooting Southcliffe in 2012, and I hadn't been um, I hadn't been in England in besides like a quick press couple of press days for Martha. I hadn't been there in 19 years, and I was really struck by how similar London was to New York now um, versus when I was a kid and moved. It felt like it felt like a world of difference. Um, so I think I started exploring that. Uh, that notion back then. And I moved a lot as a kid. And so I wanted to do something about moving um, and about why we move and what we're looking for with a move. And, um, and then for me, it was, it was all a little later and the move was the other way, but, but I, but I, I wanted to, I think I, I was doing research about the time and kind of worked my way back to 1986 because it felt like a year of great promise. It felt, like, you know, 1987 was the financial crash. And so I wanted it to be a time of promise and a time where England and America and, and really England and the rest of the world were coming together in this global market for the first time. Uh, and England opened up, um, you know, its markets to, to foreign businesses. And, and so it felt like the right merging, the right moment in time. 
Um, I imagine Rory to be, uh, you know, someone who had left England because he, he thought it was too small for him and was chasing the American dream. And then sort of bringing that, um, you know, facade of success back home. Uh, and and, and the, that his drive and ambition would be at the core of, of, of what this family's struggle would be. And, 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 and really, but, but it, on a simpler level, which you, you touched on is, is the sort of dynamics we form in marriages and, and in families and things that we normalize. Um, like, and, and things that are very common at that time was still, yeah, very common for, you know, a man to handle the finances, uh, and, and not share any information, um, with his wife and say, it's, you know, my responsibility all because, you know, and that's the world that they came from. That was the fifties post-war, uh, family structure. And um, I wanted to really explore that with characters who didn't fit it. You know, I, I wanted to have Allison. It didn't make sense that Allison assumed that role, and that is her duality: is that she is running her own business. She is completely outspoken, incredible character, um, but then slots into this role because of the time and the place and and the things she's grown up with and the things that have been given to her by her parents, and so. I wanted the whole film to challenge these notions of uh, where do we come from? Why do we believe what we believe? And is that really true to ourselves or has it been handed down to us by someone else? Mm. Do you, do you have any stage play background at all? No, I don't at all. Actually it's, it's something um, it's something that I've always wanted to do. Um, and I, I haven't done it yet. I would, I would love to if the right thing came about. Um, but I was always kind of nervous about that because it felt, because my brain is so visual and I'm so much, uh, so like my, my base is grounded in photography and, 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 and the visual image of creating a film for me is the most exciting thing in the world. And so sometimes I, you know, I, I wondered like, Oh, would I be able to, to take that to stage, but actually funny you ask is doing this film made me think like made me see sort of how incredible it would be because we basically set up days that felt like doing a play. Um, That's why I brought it up is yeah. the, the whole film <laughs> felt there were certain scenes where I was like, this is like a David Mamet play. Like, or, you know, this is mm. a, where there's, you have the echoes in the room. You have the, I don't know, the dialogue seemed very, um, lend itself to sort of a stage play vibe. And um, that's, I just thought maybe you had a background, but maybe it's just kind of running through your veins a little bit. I think so. And I, I think, I think it happens. I think my approach naturally is to create, to have as few shots as possible uh, for a setup, for a scene and, and really find it with the actors on the day, find, you know, find the blocking, use the space, let the space like sort of tell me where to shoot and how to, how to shoot. And, and so I think the end result is something where you don't feel a lot of technical interference in the performances. And, um, and so I think especially the big fight that Roy and Allison have, um, you know, is a clear example of that. But, but there's also, you know, one of the most special shoot days we had was this day that was in the bed, their, their bedroom, Roy and Allison's bedroom in the house in England. And we shot 
every scene that happens in that room in one day. <laughs> and we did it in order. And it was like watching a marriage go from like playful, loving, you know, there's the sex scene, there's this passion, there's this attraction, and it dissolves over the course of the day into, uh, you know, the scene where you, basically she's waking up alone. And so it felt, it felt like watching a marriage disintegrate over the mm-hmm. course of 12 hours. And it was a really moving experience and, and such a pleasure to be in there with, you know, with Jude and Carrie and just, you know, and that, and that was what, like, I, I, that was a day I was like, oh, this, something like this could be a play on its own. Yeah. I, that scene where Jude is asking for money uh, or Rory is asking for yeah. money, it, it, it's like, oh man, you just <laughs> think things are not going well. <laughs> yeah. The end is near. Um, yeah. But it, it's interesting how, well, but before I forget, what were the, the logistics of shooting the, the dead horse scene? Uh, because you actually had a horse in that tractor, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So my production designer, James Price, is is really incredible, incredible talent. And he, this is his first time designing. Uh, he was my art director on Southcliffe. And I basically I just saw how much he was doing. I saw how good he was. And I basically begged him to become a designer to do this mm-hmm. film. And, and so we spent like years talking about it and you know you finally agreed and and um and so i think in what makes him so good is that he has the creative eye and he also has the physical know-how and so he's he's just he knows the best people to get and he knows how to make it happen and um he's just got this practical side and and the artistic side and it's such a great combination and so he just knew exactly who to go to you know it's like a small shop that would make this thing and he knew it would be the most expensive item on the shoot and you know just just made it happen and and they showed up with it and there was just one so we had to do the scene where you know where she where we find it and then in the ground and then also the scene where she dropped it out where we drop it out of the tractor and mm-hmm. and we only had one so if something went wrong <laughs> when you say <laughs> one no this, redo. Is this this is a, a real a real dead horse or this is no a, it's a it, dummy this it's a, a dummy so horse okay. made it but All it right. is it's it's stunning i mean it, it was i've seen a real dead horse this is this is it i mean it was yeah. um absolutely shocking how real it was wow yeah, I I thought for sure that you you found like you went to a a ranch somewhere and just happened to find a dead a dead horse and use, <laughs> use this thing. I was like, how did he pull this off? I mean, that would have been cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might have had to wait a lot longer though. You would yeah. have been off schedule. But yeah, what I what I really like about the film too is that you're you're dropping in, and and I've noticed on the the Martha. Um, Martha Marcy May Marlene film too. You're you're sort of dropping into a story where there's a lot of unanswered questions. And with Rory's character, you think maybe you know who this guy is, but over the course of the film, you start to realize you really don't know who he is, or you're starting to learn things about him that you didn't know at the beginning, and that are very revealing in terms of his character and also his probably his backstory, his childhood because of the scenes with his mom. And then also with the Martha um, 
Martha, I always forget how to pronounce it. There's four names. Martha, Marcy, Matt, I, just call Mar- I just call it Martha. That's the, okay. The, the, Martha, <laughs> the Martha film, which was stunning, by the way. I watched it this weekend on Thanks. HBO. Same thing. You've got this, this present day moment and then a mystery as to what unfolded to get the characters there. Is that something that is just inherently in your writer's curiosity box where you're using that technique to create the conflict and the drama and the tension because I think it's a great approach to filmmaking and it's subtle because it it sort of sneaks up on you, the tension of it, because you aren't shooting films that are action films. There's a lot of silence. There's a lot of stillness. There's space in these films, yet there's a lot of tension there and conflict. So tell me about your approach as a writer to creating that visually. And also, is that something that you feel in the moment as you're writing it? Or is it something that as a filmmaker, you make happen in other ways outside of the writing? No, it's, it's very, it's very script heavy. You know, it's the work is, is on the page and it's, um, and I think, think when you read the script you can sense that at least that's always the response i get you know when when the build up to making a movie and getting people on board the response seems to be that the tension is is there on the page and clear and i think in terms of you know how i get it i don't really know i mean it's certainly more in the movie but i think there's you know the seed is planted in the script um it's really like an instinctual thing it just sort of you know, change details along the way to just make sure it has this feeling. And it's, it's something I don't know until I see it, that it's done or it's happened or that's enough. And then also editing is such a huge part of that, you know, the ins and outs of the scene and staying, it's amazing, staying 10 seconds longer and something dissolves the tension or getting out, you know, five seconds earlier is too short, you know, so there's just like a, it's, it's really, really detail-based. Mm-hmm. absolute minutia like makes it all create create the feeling um in terms of writing like i i think i'm i'm really drawn to stories where and when when the when the film or the story or the book starts and ends you feel like you're joining a life that's already in in progress and you're leaving a story that is going to continue forever mm. And I really, that's just what I love and I'm interested in and what feels the right form of storytelling for me. And um, like I'm dropping in on a life and allowing the questions and, you know, the circumstance of this person's life to unfold in a way where you would learn it as if you were with them as opposed to being told, you know, Mm-hmm. in the scene on you know page whatever where we explain the backstory <laughs> yeah yeah that's a, i now that you frame it that way it it makes sense that you're dropping in at a particular moment in a, a set of lives this group of characters and then just like in the Martha movie you sort of lift out of it and you let the yeah. let the viewers draw their own conclusions about what's going to happen um whereas in the Martha movie not to give anything away, but in Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, not a big sense of hope there at the end. Mm. But at the, you know, maybe there is because she's well, she's out, know, she's out, she's out. But there's also the <laughs> the the ominous 
car that's following, following behind there. But the Nest movie, oddly enough, as much of a train wreck as that family was, I did feel a sense of hope. I guess maybe it's yeah. the, the meal or, you know, they're all still together. And yeah. it's funny what families will put up with and tolerate because they're families. I mean, yeah. if it were anybody else, if it wasn't blood, they didn't yeah. have that history together, they'd say, enough with this yeah, bullshit, you know, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a cool dynamic. Yeah, I, 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 I really, I, I think, I, I agree with you. I, uh, for me, I feel like there's, sure, Rory and Allison, you know, fight, and, but there's also a, a lot of love and fun there. And, 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 and for me, there's a truth that's unearthed, you know, that, and so anytime, anytime a, a, a family or in a relationship, you start talking about the truth, it's only, you know, it's only a positive, it's only freeing, you know, and then this is such a couple who just keeps the truth under the surface. And so for me, and then just being together and eating and eating what they have, you know, that's the other thing. It's like, not chasing something they don't have. It's like mm-hmm. that, 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 that was always, I don't know. It's like a, it just makes sense to me that just when, you know, have a terrible night and all you can do is sit together and eat some breakfast and <laughs> get ready for what's next. Right. You know, be there, be there, be there together. And yeah. that's all there is to it. Well, speaking of stage plays, Carrie Coon comes from the stage, right? I mean, and yeah. then her husband, Tracy Letts, is kind of a theater superstar, I hear. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you really have a knack for getting characters to sign on to your projects, or not characters, but actors to sign on, that are, number one, fantastic actors with, with incredible filmographies and backgrounds. But number two, what I've noticed is there's this chameleon-like trait that I see in Carrie Coon and also in characters like, well, Dan Stevens is one, Sheila Van. I don't know how you were, how involved you were in the casting of The Rental, but Carrie Coon is one of those characters that she's fantastic. She's got some of the best acting chops of any actress in her generation, but she's also someone who is not instantly recognizable. Like, yeah. no matter what film she's in, she's great in that film, but you you don't go, oh, that's Carrie Coon. And same thing with Dan Stevens. And there's this chameleon-like characteristic that these folks have that I love because there's other actors like Alison Brie or Jude Law. That's Jude Law. That's Alison Brie. You're always going to know who that is in a given project, usually. But yeah. are you drawn to those types of actors that really provide that um and in, in other words their reputation doesn't get in the way because they're able to sort of absorb right into the film and you really don't know who this person is right away yeah it's a blend it's a blend for me i mean i just say with with the rental um casting was just dave knowing D- dave is you know he's an actor and he's so keyed in to great people and and that was just him choosing who he wanted and 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 my whole my whole position on that movie was supporting dave to make the movie he wanted to make yeah um so that was more 
but but we you know we we share like we we really share taste around actors and mm-hmm. couldn't have been happier you know like um uh, Je- like Jeremy who's in it you know Jeremy was in our first feature he was in after school so I've known Jeremy since he was I don't know maybe he was 12 at the time or 13 <laughs> 14 something like that you know so right um and I had nothing to do with that that was just Dave wanting to work with Jeremy and so um we have a definitely have a huge overlap in, in taste and um but but generally my approach is is balance right like I think when there's too many famous people, it, I struggle to sort of get sucked into the world, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also a lot of great actors who are just don't get the chance to do good material, although that's changing now with the amount of television there is. Like you've seen um, just such great people finally get a chance to do good extended roles. Um, you know, I, I grew up in casting. I was uh, an assistant in Susan Shopmaker's office for, for six years. Um, and so I would see all these people come in and get to know them a little bit and audition them and they wouldn't get the roles and, but they were just so talented. And so, I mean, basically when we made Martha, that's almost, you know, that's so much of that, the the younger actors in there were just a bunch of people I knew who I thought should you know get a role yeah and and and, and then you know with that I wanted to find I wanted to find someone like for Martha who we'd never seen before because I felt like it was a part that needed that that we couldn't have someone famous attached with whatever whatever that meant but then um you know and with Rory and Allison I wanted that blend of like well first of all it's just ridiculous that Carrie Coons never had a lead role in a movie. So, you know, that was, that's just ridiculous. It's just a matter of time before she's considered, you know, I mean, I think most people already consider her one of the best and and it's just a matter of time before that gets wider, I think. Um, But then balancing her with someone like Jude, who who is more famous, I think it's, but, but then it's also a movie where Jude completely, you know, sinks into this part and, um, you know, he, he, Jude made a movie with my friend Brady Corbet, Box Lux, and, and I was watching, you know, I was watching cuts of that like a year before we were making The Nest, and I just saw Jude like disappear into this role as a music manager, and it was just, I, I thought he was brilliant in that. And, you know, so, so every, everyone's, you know, they're, they're just great actors. That's the thing. At yeah. the end of the day, I just want to work with great actors and some of them happen to be a bit more famous than others, but right. it's, it's, and, and when you're there, it's, it's just creating like an even playing field, especially with this, where I had such a variety with like, it was Una Roach's first movie. It was Charlie Shotwell's young actor, but has lots of experience, you know, with Jude and Carrie, but, it, it, but with, with the family, it was completely even and, and no one's different than anyone else. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I forgot to mention on the uh, Martha Marcy movie, Sarah Paulson's character yeah. and then yeah. Hugh Dancy have the same essence that I was just describing, which is, yeah. and Hugh Dancy especially. I mean, every single thing I see that guy in, I'm like, it takes me a while to realize. I'm like, does he look, he looks kind of familiar. <laughs> but there's, I think there's just a physicality to certain actors where they they truly become whatever role they're in. And this isn't, you know, this isn't a slam against Jude Law. When I say I instantly recognize Jude Law, he's that guy is just so freaking handsome that 
you yeah. can't you can't help but like have a man crush on that dude because he's <laughs> he's that um striking but someone like Hugh Dancy or Sarah Paulson it takes you a while to really you're like okay now i know who these people are after ha- you're halfway yeah. through the movie you know i love that sarah's sarah's a you know i mean i think sarah's when i, I basically I, I wanted to work with sarah for years because i watched the um that aaron sorkin show um studio was it on the sunset strip studio 50, 60 was it 54 no i think it was wasn't it studio 60 on this anyway oh oh <laughs> i, I know remember. what you're talking about yes studio 54, 60 on the sunset strip it was sort of yeah. like this snl kind of thing but Sarah was in that and I just thought she was amazing. And so I sort of had it in my mind for years that I wanted to work, work with her. Mm-hmm. And then when this came about, when Martha came about, I, I, I went to her for it. But, but it's, you know, there's also that. There's also like these people who, you know, are half in my head and, and never force it, but just kind of wait. And then when the right thing comes about. So what does that process look like? I mean, you have ideas. You were producing films for years, right? Yeah. And then you have this script, this Martha film, and you're first-time director of a feature film, or at least that's my understanding based upon your IMD page. Yeah, it was. Uh, So what is the process where you have people in mind, but you don't have necessarily the the street cred or yeah. the, the reputation yet to back up your pitch to these folks? Well, we, you know, we had this company borderline films at the time and, and we, you know, had this very collective mission where Josh Mond, Antonio Campos and I were, we all wanted to be directors. So we were producing for each other, but we were doing it more out of necessity to provide the platform for each other. And, and we would, you know, take our successes off of the films that we were making all together and sort of share that. And so we were able to, um, you know, after school went to Cannes and, you know, that, so, so we were able to, and it started to get a following. And so we were able to, you know, meet people off of that. Like, and I remember that was a really uh, tricky thing for people to wrap their heads around. Um, you know, when they'd ask Antonio, oh, what are you doing next? And he would say, oh, we're going to do Sean's movie next. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I remember, like, we had a, uh, you know, Ted Hope was a big mentor for us. And he, you know, he had invited Antonio to his screening series, which he had in New York at the time. And, and we went and, and I remember Antonio saying that to him. And he was like, really? You know, he like kind of kind of didn't almost didn't believe it. He thought like it was like his, you know a guy like trying to get his friend's movies made as opposed to us being actual filmmakers. And then Ted read the script and loved it. And, and so he then, Ted was a big part of championing it. And, and, and on the casting side, I, you know, like I said, I worked for Susan Shotmaker, which also cast all our stuff. And, and so the casting side, we sort of had a foot in that world. And so, you know, and I really lean on Susan for ideas. I mean, Susan's really a big part of my process. And so, um, you know, she, we would have just started with Martha with her, you know, reaching out to Sarah Paulson and, and, and then doing open casting call for Martha. And so it, it sounds like there's really no one right answer for how you do anything in the film industry. Uh, there's, no, there's just a, not. a lot of <laughs> whatever you got to do. <laughs> yeah. There's just a lot of organic in the moment thinking that you have to do. Absolutely. To um, to find the right people to attach to your project, and my guess is the the most important thing is 
you have to have a good story. And so you wrote this Martha script and you wrote the Nest script and you got it to some amazing folks to attach to this film and get it done. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place, our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com slash newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Thanks, and now back to the interview. How important is the film festival process for you as a filmmaker, given that I understand looking at previous interviews, you're not on social media. So you're not a big self-promoter in that respect. So do you look at film festivals as crucial to being able to operate in this world and to get the word out? Yeah, they have been for me. I mean, um, you know, some films don't, don't need them. I mean, it's, it's been absolutely crucial for me. Um, and I think they're also almost becoming more important again. You know, they're becoming some of the only places where you can see great films in cinemas. You know, it's, um, I certainly didn't think that my Nest premiere this year it would be the only time, you know, yeah. we screened the film in a cinema. Right. Uh, I mean, we had a theatrical release for it, but it was, you know, it was more technicality because we had to um, based on contracts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, yeah. So festivals are hugely important. I mean, um, Sundance got behind me with the Martha script and I went to the lab and my, my short film was also there that same year. And so Sundance in particular has really been supportive to me. You know, I would say doing the director's lab was just one of the most profound experiences of my life. I mean, not just from a filmmaking standpoint, but from a personal standpoint, I think um, it was a huge, huge moment in my life and, and it was a very special place. And so I, I've always felt very supported by them and, and it helps you know, it helps people notice it, 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 it gives you a sort of stamp, especially as a young filmmaker starting out. Um, and, and the same with can, uh, can was, uh, I mean, you know, we, at borderline, we produced a lot of stuff. I think we went to can five times and, and it was, you know, we weren't making commercial work. And so having those, that, that stamp of approval from Cannes in a way allows you to come back and sort of use it to, you know, get the next film made or, you know, it's, it's really, um, yeah, it was really, it's always been really helpful. So tell us about the lab experience. Was that after Martha or was that before? No, it was before Martha. Okay, okay. It was, I went there with the writers. I went to the writer's lab in January and um, sort of workshop the script and then, um, and then went back in June and did the director's lab and then we shot in August. So, oh, wow. Yeah, it was, you know, and then also I, I, they, they give all these artists grants over the course of the year. I mean, I think I literally survived that year based on, grants from Sundance because didn't make any money making the movie. Um, <laughs> and so it was just really crucial, a crucial um, part of my, my life. And so 
Um, yeah, so so the interesting thing about the the lab was that it was, in a way, it's like, I think the process affects everyone differently. And what I learned there was there's a lot of questions thrown at me. And in the end, what it led me to do was say, no, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to stick to it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So the process is sort of made, I think, to like cause a lot of scrutiny and doubt. Not doubt. It's doubt's not the right word, but it's it's a lot of scrutiny, and it and it's almost for me it's it's sort of too much scrutiny because I don't scrutinize things in that way because it can be overwhelming. And so it's almost like finding it's almost like reassuring you to find your voice mm. and be able to say no, this is my film. Like because everyone's always going to have more ideas, and 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 but at the end of the day, and that and that has turned out to be the most vital lesson. Because that's what the industry is. Yeah, it's a lot of people throwing ideas at you and uh, telling you it should be done this way or you can't do it that way or that we're not. They're not making those kinds of movies right now. That's you know only for TV or whatever it is. Or there's just this whole set of sort of social uh, like rules that apply, and you have to kind of navigate them and and hold on to what it is you want to do. And fight for that. What do you think is more important in in terms of your formative years as a filmmaker and becoming the filmmaker that you are today? Was it film school or was it the lab experience at Sundance? Or is that even is that an unfair question? Yeah, it's yeah. There, I mean, there. It's all one journey, you know. It's all one thing. I mean, uh, I couldn't have gone to the lab without doing. Not only film school, but then years of making short films after film school, mm. producing two features. Uh, you know, there's no, you know, the, there's there's no lab without those moments in between. So, and even before film school, those like I went to another. I, w- I went to a school in upstate New York, um, and the, you know, I would say the intro to film class that I took there was maybe the thing that really planted the seed for me i would say like my time in a black you know developing black and white photos in a dark room basement dark room there was some of the most formative like image creation you know of my life mm-hmm. so so, the, so it's all you know it's all one journey and all feeds in I haven't heard anything about your childhood or your your parents and their influence on you, but it sounds like your parents were certainly not an impediment to you chasing this dream after high school. No, not at all. So tell us how they played a role in your life in terms of nurturing and cultivating this this knack for, you know, visual art and this this ambition to become a filmmaker. Yeah. I mean, my my parents are very, very supportive people, very, very loving, very caring for me. Um, and I would say I had a very unconventional childhood. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, supported enough in the right ways. My dad worked really hard. My dad never, like, never really had schooling and, and he worked really hard to get me to into like send me to good schools and 
and and and try to support that but he never um he wasn't someone who like cared about my grades like he just kind of wanted me to have good experiences that he didn't have and so um so i never felt the sort of pressure from them i guess um and i and i think you know i think my my mom comes from a family of artists who didn't really get to be artists um mm. there's a huge amount of talent in my mom's family but none of them ever got to do it part of that was being um you know one of five girls born in the 40s and 50s and just not being allowed to do anything except being told they couldn't really do anything that be wives mm-hmm. um and so I think there was a sort of artistic spirit, but one that was unpracticed. Um, and I think um, my my I have some really like, crucial film memories with my dad. Um, my dad really was the one who I think turned me on to movies in a way. He we had. We had Beetlejuice and Big Trouble in Little China. Like those are his two favorite movies <laughs> when I was a kid, Great and films. those were on repeat. And and like we loved Back to the Future and The Goonies. Um, and so those movies were just always on. And my dad loved Bond movies. And so we lived in England, and every bank holiday Monday, um, they would play a Bond movie. And and I remember my mom would always say, like, God, you're watching that again. And he'd be like, Oh no, it's the one we haven't seen. <laughs> yeah, you know, so so it so it was this ongoing joke, and then and then like a couple of, yeah, I just remember a couple of, like he took me to see Seven when I was in middle school oh, wow. at a theater in New York. That's you know, a like mind blower. It, yeah, and yeah. it was just we have these great. You know, I remember when I was very young. I remember watching Three Days of the Condor with him at home when I was like eleven. You know, so so um, so it was always there, but we didn't talk about it. And he um, he really wanted me to be an architect. And he was really pushing me to be an architect, but not not overly so, just sort of more nudging me, I'd say. And I remember thinking, like, I just don't have the passion for it. I love it. I, and I still love it and, you know, would dream of building a home one day and, you know, things like that. But but I knew I didn't have the passion to do the work. Um, and finally, you know, I kind of broke it to him. We kind of had it out. And I was like, look... I appreciate the guidance, but it's not me. And I know it's not. And the thing he said was, well, if you want to make films, you have to watch Chinatown. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and then, and then really um, helped me when I wanted to go to NYU. And so, yeah, there was real support. And then my mom also, you know, I think played a huge role in, in the, uh, in sort of where my taste lies because she loved ghost stories. And so she would tell me ghost stories when I was way too young. And she, like, we would, we lived in London and we'd go up to Hampstead Heath and go walking in the fog. And she would, like, we'd scare ourselves with story, ghost stories. And, you know, so I think, um, like, the, and, and she kind of let me watch anything except um, I wasn't allowed to watch Nightmare on Elm Street. That was the only thing. <laughs> so I think a- that's sort of like dark that enjoyment of like dark fear and things came from her in a very playful way. Right. Um, yeah. So they both had, yeah, a big influence on me that way. So they don't mind gore and 
you know, slasher type movies as long as there's a good story to it. Uh, right. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't, yeah. yeah, I don't, I don't know the reasoning behind it. <laughs> you know. That's funny. Yeah. So what's next for The Nest? I know this is an awkward question, but is there an Oscar campaign that you're creating or a part of, or how does that work as you're building up to the Oh, end I of don't the know year? how that works. I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, we are just, you know, the film comes out tomorrow on digital platforms. And so it's been a lot of build up to that. And, um, you know, Jude and Carrie got Gotham nominations last week and, um, yeah, I mean, we'll just, you know, we'll just continue, um, sharing the movie and, and, and doing, I don't know. I don't know whatever, whatever comes next in the process. Yeah. Do you have any, <laughs> sort of, yeah. any, any projects you're, you're currently working on that you can talk about? Um, I probably rather not talk about them. Um, but yeah, I do. I mean, one I've talked about openly before is I, I've been working on it, trying to make a film about the, um, Von Eric family who are a, a wrestling family. Hmm. From, in- from England or from they were the they're Tex- They're from Texas. Oh, okay. They're sort of, uh, Texan heroes. Um, they were, they kind of revolutionized the sport in the late seventies and early eighties. Oh, um, wow. but they were a haunted family. They were a cursed family, so to speak. And they're sort of described as the Kennedys of sports. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so been, been working on something about them. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating what you can do with wrestling families, you know, fighting with my family, the Vince Vaughn mm-hmm. movie I saw at Sundance two years ago. Um, and then, you know, the wrestler with uh, yeah. Mickey Rourke, I, I guess as a, a film buff, I would not think that wrestling would be a place where you would see great stories flow out of, but it's fascinating the the whole industry is fascinating i think um and it's a Me lot too. more a lot more nuanced and complex than you would think than the uh, the clichés would uh, make you think yeah i mean it's a brutal brutal existence yeah um but one i think that sounds quite addictive when in it and um yeah there's like a real high life to it and a real low side to it and mm-hmm. yeah and also you know the what i'm focusing on is it's like a family business and it's 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 really yeah really fascinating so so i have one final question for you before you hop on to your next media obligation (laughs) um imagine that you're standing in front of a room full of people just starting out in your field and they're they're hungry to succeed what advice would you give them mindset wise tactically or strategically to be successful in this industry well, I don't know. I don't know what being successful is necessarily. Um, I think that that's different for everyone. But, but I, I would say that uh, for me, there's nothing greater than making a movie, being on set, and just having that experience. And I think if you are someone who believes it's you know you have that feeling to create in your soul you know you have that feeling to get something out on film uh do everything you can to do it go for it and it's scary um and you might fail you might succeed whatever that means um but the year of making a movie is going to be the most memorable year of your life Mm -hmm. um 
and 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 there's so there's just so much uh emphasis on like the end result and career and things like that but it's it's just so much more about the moment for me it's about the creation itself and if you have something that you feel like you need to get out do it and fight for it and the way to do that is to uh, find people that you trust and can collaborate with and to remember that a film is a collaboration is not uh, a one person job and uh, yeah build trust and openness and and make it as cheap as you can and make it look as good as you can and uh, but more importantly than anything get good actors because uh, it's all about performance really Oh, great advice. Sean, <laughs> Sean Durkin, it's been a pleasure talking to you and thank you for making time for me today. Wish you Thanks all so the, much for having wish me. Wish you all the best as the Nest launches on uh, streaming platforms tomorrow and um, hopefully is slated for more awards as we hit award season. Thank you. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Take care, Sean. Hey, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path.